Hello and welcome to The Runecast, a podcast about runology and runic inscriptions. This is episode one for September 24th, 2018, and my name is Maya Bekval. And this is the very first episode of this brand new podcast, uh, so it's going to be all about introductions and beginnings and origins. So to start off, what is this? What's going on? Um, this is a podcast about runology, but what does runology mean? Well, runology is the academic study of runes and runic inscriptions. Uh, you'll find runologists in various fields, sometimes literally in various fields. Some, like myself, are linguists, work in language departments, um, or wherever you will study languages like Old Norse or Old English. Uh, others are archaeologists or art historians. So it's a field of study that's pretty broad, because we look at everything surrounding an inscription. And of course, we look at what it says, we look at how to translate it, but also the physical context, uh, like the object that's been inscribed, where it's found, and how the writing is framed. So it's an interdisciplinary field, by default, really. So this podcast is about runic writing when it was in use, either as the primary writing system or alongside the Latin alphabet. So the time span we're looking at is roughly from the 2nd century AD to around the 13th century. So that's a nice millennium <laughs> to get through in about 10 episodes. So what what's important here is that uh, this isn't about runes as modern divination or as individual symbols, but it is as a writing system. Uh, I will talk about modern uses of runes in a later episode, but that's not the focus here. At this point, you might also be wondering who I am. As I said, my name is Maya. I work as a postdoctoral researcher at the Department of Scandinavian Languages at Uppsala University. I work on Viking Age runestones, which we have a lot of in this specific area of Sweden. Uh, and I'm also an Old Norse philologist, so I work on medieval manuscripts, and I'm generally interested in readers and the audiences of texts. And I think during this podcast you'll probably hear me talk a lot about audiences and who is reading and who is experiencing an inscription. So in this episode, I am going to introduce some basics of runology, some central concepts and terms that I'll be using a lot on the podcast. And the main bulk of it is an interview with Professor Henrik Williams about the origins of runes. So first, some basics of runology. I'm going to start talking about futharks. And most of you will probably have heard this word before. It's basically the word for a runic alphabet. And like the Latin or Greek alphabet, it's just a standardised way of presenting the characters in this writing system. And we have pretty early inscriptions with futharks on them. Uh, for example, a runestone from Kilver in Gotland from about the 5th century. So they're pretty well attested. We generally talk about three different futharks. So it's the older futhark, the younger futhark, and the Anglo-Saxon or Anglo-Frisian futhark. And on this podcast, I'll be concentrating on inscriptions in the older and younger futharks. The Anglo-Frisian ones will make appearances from time to time, but won't be the main focus. So the older futhark has 24 runes. Sometimes you'll hear it talked about as the 24-rune futhark. The younger one has 16 runes, and the Anglo-Frisian has 29 and I'll be putting the different futharks on the podcast webpage, so I won't try to describe them here. And when you start looking at the futharks, you'll notice pretty quickly that a lot of them look like characters from the Latin alphabet, and that's not a coincidence, which you'll hear about in a bit when Henrik Williams talks about the origins of the runes. 
So an important thing to remember about runes is that the spelling reflects the sound of the word being spelled. And that sounds pretty obvious, but if you think about it, it is weirdly unfamiliar to those of us who've grown up reading and writing any language with a long history of writing in, for example, the Latin alphabet. Uh, We're used to silent letters and letters that don't really have a sound value of their their own, uh, like Q and C in a lot of languages. We're used to bizarre ways of spelling things, and those bizarre things come from the fact that this is how it was actually pronounced once long ago. English is very much an example of this. Just think about things like tough and though and plough. And if you've ever tried to figure out the uh, connection between written Irish and spoken Irish, you will really know this. So what happens is, if you've grown up thinking this way, and you want to write, for example, your name in runes, um, you'll try to kind of find a one-to-one correlation between the letters of your name and the letter that a rune represents, and do this kind of one-to-one switch. What you should do, though, is you should listen to the sound of your name rather to the way it's spelt. Uh, So, for example, I spell my name M-A-J-A in the typical Swedish way. And the first two sounds are fine in runes. Uh, The M rune is an M sound. The A rune is an A sound, so you have Ma already. But if I then go and look for a J and find a J rune, I'll be going wrong. Because that is a J sound. And my name is not Maja. Well, the rune I actually need is the I rune, the one that's represented by an I, because it's a Maya, is the sound of it. So the thing you're doing when you do this kind of one-to-one representation switch is that you're transliterating your name into runes, when what you probably want to do is to transcribe your name. And so transliterating and transcribing are two quite important terms that are good to know moving forward. So if you look at a representation of a futhark like the ones that are on the webpage, they'll have one little Latin alphabet character underneath each rune. I've already kind of used them by talking about the M rune and the J rune and so on. And this is the transliteration of the rune. So this is the representation of which rune we're talking about, not necessarily which sound we're talking about. They are based on the sound values. The rune that is transliterated as F does denote an F sound, and F sound, uh, and the rune transliterated as U does have an U sound, and so on. But that's not the entire truth. Uh, most runes can have several different sound values depending on the context. So for example, the U rune, it could also have a V sound. So when a runologist comes across an inscription, the first thing they do is transliterate it. And this means writing down a Latin alphabet representation of the inscription rune by rune to show how things are written. They would also mark things like damaged runes or gaps in the inscription while they're transliterating. And the standard way of doing this is writing it in bold font. So the reason for this is that it makes things slightly easier to read rather than having just like a drawing of the runic inscriptions or writing it in a kind of rune font, Uh, although some people prefer to write in a rune font. And it shows how this particular runologist reads the runes in front of them. What you're trying to do is minimise the interpretation you're doing, although, of course, you are interpreting to a certain extent. You've decided which runes you see on this inscription. The thing you really don't do is fix things. You don't correct things you consider to be misspellings or things like that. That's a later stage. That later stage is transcription. So this is where you start interpreting for real. So transcribing means you read the runes, 
and then you write down what words they represent. Where you, When you're transliterating, you're writing down which runes you see. Now you're writing down the meaning, so to speak. The standard for doing this is writing it in italics. And basically what you're trying to do is you're writing down in a standardised way what someone at the time would have read out if they were reading the inscription out loud. So, as an example, say we find a fragment of a runestone in the wall of a medieval church. This happens relatively often, actually. First we get really excited, and then we transliterate. So, say the runes on our fictional fragment are first a cross, which is a form of punctuation, which separates words or parts of words, and then the runes S, T, N, and I, and then another little cross. What we know here is it's probably one word. So that's the runes. They're perfectly legible, and everyone who reads this will know which runes are on there and in which order, without seeing a photo of the fragment, for example. So when we move on to transcribe it, there is no word stni to fit that row of runes. What there is, however, is the word stain, uh, which means stone. And it's very, very common on runestones, because runestones very often talk about this stone was commissioned or made for this and that person. So we would be guessing, but it would be a pretty informed guess, that the word that on our fragment is stain. And that would be how we transcribe it. There would then be discussions as part of a name, leave stain. Is it the word stain as in resti stain and so on? But that's for a later argument between phrenologists over beer. So say I write my name M-A-J-A in runes, that would be transliterating it, not transcribing it. So yes, normally when you see a runic inscription being discussed, you'll see first the transliteration in bold type, and then the transcription in italics, and then most often a translation afterwards in single quotation marks or something like that. Now, some people would be listening to this and think, don't the runes have names? Why doesn't you use those instead of the F rune? And yes, you could say there are names or kind of identifiers for the runes. Names isn't a great word for it. I will be talking about those in a later, later episode, but for now I do prefer to talk about the F rune and the U rune and the M rune and so on. And you can think of it as a kind of verbal transliteration. I'm just saying which Latin character will usually represent the rune I'm talking about with. And speaking of identifiers, um, another thing that's good to know in runology is that runic inscriptions are usually referred to by a signum, uh, which is a little code that technically tells you something about where it's been published. There are big corpuses of runic inscriptions for, for example, Sweden and Denmark and Norway, and a lot of the signums you'll see refer to those. So if you see, for example, a signum like U1011, that means it is a runic inscription from the region of Uppland, or rather it's published in one of the four volumes about Uppland in the big corpus of Swedish runic inscriptions, and it's number 1011 in that. So it's U for Uppland Runeskifter, and then its own unique number. So you might notice that it doesn't only tell you where you can look it up uh, and see the transliteration and see the transcription, but it also helpfully tells you usually where in the world it is. Runic inscriptions are also often referred to by the name of the place where it's found. Um, you can hear, for example, about the uh, Kauhul inscription, also known as DR196, uh, because it's a Danish inscription and published in Denmark's Rune Inskrifter. 
Hopefully this shouldn't give you too much trouble during this podcast. I'll try to be as clear as I can, but it can be good to know. So that was a little introduction to transliteration and transcriptions and how to talk to runic inscriptions at parties. Uh, next up is an interview with Henrik Williams about the origins of runes. I'm joined by Henrik Williams, who's the professor of Scandinavian languages here in Uppsala, and I would say one of the world's leading runologists. It's quite easy. There are not that many of us. <laughs> no, that's the thing. <laughs> We're all leading. So since this episode is about introducing runes and runology, I thought it would be good to talk a bit about the origins of the runes and where they come from. Well, that's a very easy question, isn't it? Well, the question itself is not that easy, uh, and the answer is even more complicated. But it's uh, it's a very interesting and um, intricate question that needs to be asked. And uh, so, do you have any opinions on this? I do. As a matter of fact, I have published, uh, I think, three articles on this topic, but I'll try to be impartial here. Um, there are basically three theories about the origin of the runes. And a, we can start off by just saying that it's quite clear that runes are not an independent invention. It didn't, didn't come up from the Germanic tribes as uh, something they thought of. It's something that they copied from a classical alphabet. Uh, we can see that quite clearly because you look at the R, for example, mm. the R rune, that looks like a Roman R. Uh, we have the I, looks exactly like an I, the T, very much like a T, and so forth. So this is this is beyond doubt, and nobody questions that, uh, at least not since the Nazis in the Second World War. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't <laughs> listen to them that much. No, we should not. And the three theories are the following. One, that the Germanic tribes borrowed the Roman alphabet and turned that into runes. Mm-hmm. Secondly, that they borrowed the Greek alphabet. And thirdly, that they borrowed what was the descendant of the Etruscan alphabet. Now, the Etruscans themselves uh, died out fairly you know, long before Christ, but their alphabet was in fact used by Celtic tribes in northern Italy and up in the Alps. Mm. And all of these three theories are conceivable. They all have problems. The common problem for all three of them is that the runes don't look exactly like any of the three possible parent alphabets. So you're basically saying that there's not a one-to-one thing that will fix all the problems. There is no one-to-one fit. And that has been explained away by everybody else but me (laughs) (laughs) in various ways. Um, But we can start with the oldest alphabet, the Greek alphabet. The problem there is that in order for that to be a true pattern, the runes had to be borrowed before 400 BC. Mm. Because at that time, the Greek alphabet still maintained certain letters that they were certain sounds that they then lost that are present in the runic alphabet or the futhark. So that's, that's a problem. And there is one scientist above all, Richard Morris, who in the late 80s published a book on the origin of the runes where he says that there are many similarities between runes and the Greek alphabet, and he's quite right about that. And he also says that it's not that much of a problem that there are several centuries in between the origin of the runes and the first finds. We do have our first certain find of runic inscription in about 160 AD Mm. from Denmark. However, that would be 500 years after the runes must have been invented. 
but there are other inscriptions that predate this of uncertain runicity. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a fibula from Meldorf, for example, which is probably dated, well, around 25 or so AD. And if that were runic, of course, we would push back the origin of the runes at least 100 years. So this basically comes down to, do we believe that there can be that much of a find-less period between the origin of the runes and actual finds? Hmm. I, for one, am not so sure about that. And I've talked to archaeologists who say that there really isn't, isn't any explanation why we wouldn't find any earlier finds if there were any. So, uh, and the, I would say that right now the Greek theory is not very popular. So, um, the second oldest alphabet would be the Etruscan. Mm-hmm. And um, that was indeed used by these North Italic tribes. Um, well, probably up until or possibly a little bit after the birth of Christ. However, they're down in the Alps. And the Germanic tribes at the time were in very far northern Europe, yes. the very far north. And um, finding a direct contact zone between these two is not that simple. However, of course, there's always the possibility of trade. And you can also conceive of a Germanic person uh, taking a tourist trip, you know, in the yeah. Alps, that's nice, and running across these Celts up there and borrowing their alphabet from mm-hmm. them. Uh, there is no single pattern alphabet that we found, North Italic, that would translate into the runic Futhark. So just because I think the listeners here will know what the Greek alphabet looks like, what the Roman alphabet looks like, but what does this Etruscan Italic alphabet look like? Well, it's most likely borrowed from the the Greek, so it looks more like the Greek. Um, It has certain features, for example, in these languages, they didn't have the voiced stops. There was no B and so forth. Mm. So there would be P's and, and T's instead of D's and so forth. And that would be kind of complicated because, of course, the runic alphabet has these sounds oh. or these runes. But it's um, you'll just have to look it up. It's hard to describe <laughs> on a podcast what they look like. But yeah. you know, look under Etruscan or North Italic. I'll uh, probably put something on the, uh, the Runecast website everyone to look at. I'm sure you will. Anyhow, uh, this theory has been quite popular, especially on the continent, because most people want the origin of the runes to be close to home, uh, and very much among Anglo-Saxon phrenologists and, and historians. So, for example, um, Eliot, who wrote one of the first um, general overviews of runes in English, He was in favor of this, and I think there's still quite a few German scholars who believe in this theory. And above all, there's an Australian historian, Bernard Mies, who's recently published some interesting work on this theory. And he comes up with many interesting and valuable observations. Um, However, again, he's not capable of making one-to-one fit. Mm. And he would probably say that it's not that important to have such a one-on-one fit. And some people believing in the theory would say that, well, there isn't a single such alphabet, but you would have to pick from several, Mm. which is perfectly possible, but it's just not that likely. And I'm a very simple-minded person, and I want very simple and straightforward explanations in order for me to be able to believe in them. Mm. So is the... Problem that you talk about was kind of how would they get to the Alps, the northern Germanic tribes? Is that also a problem for the Greek question, or do we know more about 
maybe this is not maybe your expertise, but do we know more about how people moved towards Greece? Uh, we don't know a whole lot more, but I, for one, is I'm very hesitant in ruling out possible contact. Mm. People did move around in the ancient world a lot more than we usually envision them doing. Absolutely. And a chance encounter could very well result. Uh, there is a modern parallel to the creation of an alphabet, and that is in the United States, or in America, I should say, where a Cherokee chieftain called Sequoia came in contact very early with various European alphabets and might even come in contact with Hebrew letters through these European colonists. And he created a syllable script that is still used today by Cherokee tribes and nations. And this spread like wildfire. And the interesting thing is that the letters look, you can clearly see where they're derived from, mm -hmm. but they have no relationship whatsoever with the European letter value. So everything, more or less, is possible. And I, I think the theory would be the best one that would explain the most and have uh, the least ifs and buts about it. <laughs> well, that brings me to the Latin theory, which is actually the oldest one, which was quite natural because, of course, many hundred years back, we only knew about the, the later runic futhark, the one used in the Viking and the Middle Ages. And people actually thought for a long time that that was the oldest alphabet. And that was partly because there were so few remnants of the oldest ones. Uh, for example, when Grimm wrote his Über Deutsche Runen in 1822, there were no German runic inscriptions at all. <laughs> he just said there, there must have been. And it turned out he was quite right. Now we have almost 100 <laughs> these days, or from the continent at least. Now we know, since 1839, when a Dane came, realized that actually the 24 older runes could be deciphered. And he, in order to do that, he used an old English manuscript that had disappeared, burned up, but someone had fortunately been able to reprint it, Hicks, in 1705. And he combined the information in there about the English runes that told us about their letter values with the find of a bracket, which is a small golden metal uh, found in Vastena in Sweden in 1774. And it had the 24 runes. And there were obviously such similar similarities between these runes in Sweden and the ones in the Old English manuscript that he could then translate the letter values from the Old English manuscript to the, the ones found in Scandinavia at the time. There are some differences. And it took another 100 years before we finally deciphered the final rune here. But from the mid-19th century, that's when the interpretation of the oldest runic inscription really starts. Mm. And we then know for a fact that it's the 24-type futhark that is the oldest and is, must be taken as the starting point of where to go looking for the origin. And yes. of course, these days we would start off with the oldest couple of centuries. I would say that runes and runic inscriptions from the 2nd, 3rd, and possibly 4th century there would be the ones that we should take into account. Mm. And of course, the older, the better. So the oldest scholars thought that the Latin alphabet was the origin of the runes. And many later, especially Scandinavian runologists, think the same. 
And there are good reasons why priests think this. First of all, we know for a fact that Romans and Germanic tribes were in close contact at the end of the prehistory or BC and the beginning of AD. Mm. The Romans pushed north and um, just before the birth of Christ, uh, they reached all the way up to the Elbe. And just after the birth of Christ, the Germanic tribes managed to push them down to the Rhine. And there were obviously close contact there. Mm. And there were other people impressed by Roman alphabets. The Celts, for example, borrowed the letters themselves, or they used the Roman system to form their own alphabet, which mm. is the Ogham, probably a little bit later than Romans were invented. But my personal belief, and I think I have good support for this, is that somebody in the Germanic area was very much impressed by the Roman letters and saw how they could be used for everything. The problem, of course, was that we didn't have use for the full scope of writing. Writing at first must have been pure luxury, and we only find runes on very exclusive and limited things like uh, weapons and the back of jewelry, brooches mm. and so forth. But it was still impressive just to be able to write at all. And this is, I think, the true reason why someone knowing Latin and knowing the letters from the Roman alphabet, sat down and said, hmm, I'm going to do something with this. I'm going to adapt this to my own language. And there were problems because there were 23 letters in the Roman alphabet, but the Germanic person or persons felt the need for 24 sounds. So they had to at least come up with one new character. Also, there were about five letters in the Roman alphabet that were of no use. For example, there is C, there is K, and there is Q. So they could use the extra letters and, and uh, Z, or as you would say, Z, <laughs> and Y. No, excuse me, uh, Z and, and X uh, were also unnecessary. So I think what they did was that they sat down and indiscriminately just used these. And when, when the system fit, that was good and well. And when they needed new sounds or new letters, they just used whatever they thought was good. And um, actually, if, if you follow the idea that shape alone determines origin, you can come up with a perfect fit for 23 of the runes. And that only leaves out the D rune that looks like a butterfly. And I think that is simply a doubled D, mirrored D, yes. as it were. Uh, so you imagine a kind of capital D and you mirror that, it yeah, kind of touches you, its... Exactly, in the middle. Yeah. So that's my very simple explanation <laughs> of these things. Very simple. So, for example, you have the, the W rune that kind of looks like a P, and so your idea is that, your belief is that, that's because you don't need the P sound. So you well, can you did need the P sound. Yes. You so... do have a P rune. And that was the big complication of why, <laughs> if, if there is a P in Roman and there is a P in Germanic... Why wouldn't you let the P-looking letter stand for the P in Germanic? Well, that's a very complicated process, <laughs> and I would have to refer you to uh, what I've written about this, and all of this is on my webpage at Uppsala University, so you can download my articles if you want to. But basically, these five extra sounds, you would think that you would take the five unnecessary letters to use for them, right? Yes, that, that would make sense. That's not how it works always. Not everything <laughs> makes sense. And we have other examples of this. And this is not my own idea. It's, it's a linguist from Utah who came up 
with there is a law by a Polish linguist called Koriwowicz, mm. which says that when you come up with something new, you don't use a new symbol, but you use an old symbol for the new, and you give a new symbol to the old. And the example that this Utah linguist Robertson used was the word meat. Now, in <clears throat> older English, meat means food, just like mat in Swedish means food of all kinds. Then you start distinguishing between food and flesh. And you would think that you would keep meat to mean food in general, because that was its original meaning. And mm. you would have a special word for the fleshy part, the meat <laughs> thing. But no, it's the complete opposite. The new concept, uh, food consisting of meat, gets the old word meat. And, and the old meaning food in general gets this new word food. And mm. that is the same process that would then in play with the runes here. So you would say that the, this process that goes for basically word meaning semantics would also work for a writing system. That is, when John Robertson first proposed this, I was flabbergasted and said, <laughs> come on, that can't be true. <laughs> but you, when you sit down and work out the math, yes, it adds up. That makes some kind of sense. I, I, hmm. <laughs> I know I've read that article and I should remember this better. <laughs> yeah, I should say that his article is published in a journal called Futhark, International Journal for Runic Studies. Of runic studies, excuse me. That article is also available on the internet if someone yes. cares to look at it. So just to kind of recap, so there's pretty much a consensus that it's from some kind of Mediterranean alphabet. Yes. Uh, because of it just generally look so much like these. Uh, and also that's kind of where the contact is. But then might be Greek, might be Etruscan, Italic, or Latin. And I personally also kind of tend towards the Latin. I think you have a good explanation there. I think also time scale is important. I think it's also really important to remember this, talking about the, the cultural exchange and the fact that people meet all the time. And I think it's interesting also the fact that because the sound values are much the same, it, it isn't the kind of, here's a alphabet, I don't know what the sound values are, I'm just going to use the signs. Is that you actually know that this is an R sound, and this is an I sound, and this is... So you actually use these, and it, it points towards someone who actually reads Latin at the time. Yes, at first, and this is more than 20 years ago when I started doing research on this, I thought that whoever did this wasn't quite clear about the letter values of, of Latin and didn't much care. But it goes against everything we know about people creating new scripts, mm. that they, you need to be quite fully initiated in the old or the parent script for you to understand how to use it yes. before you start making changes. And those changes are the most interesting ones. And that is why this is not just a academic question. I mean, mm. who cares where, where the runes <laughs> came from? Actually, it says a lot about Germanic society at the time. It says mm. we have so little to go on, so so few sources. That's every little piece of the puzzle is incredibly valuable here. And the most important aspect is the fact that strikes you the most. All these Mediterranean alphabets have an ABC order. And the ABC order is basically what follows. Every single time you borrow a script, you will follow the order of the... It was taken from the Semitic alphabet, the Phoenician, the Greek, the Etruscan, the Roman, and ABC was still there. The Germanic order of the characters is the Futhark, F-U-T-H-A-R-K. Why would they 
diverge from the old order. I think this speaks to Germanic independence. Mm. They said, yes, we're going to use your stuff, but we're Germanic people. We're not <laughs> Romans. You use your writing for more or less everything, right? Mm. Laws, love letters, pornography, whatever. We're, we're going to use it for a very limited purpose. And we don't, we don't have schools like you do. We need to find a system, a simple system, by which we can hand over, hand on, and learn runes. And what I'm saying now is speculation, but I think it's a pretty good guess. They came up with something that has been done in other cultures, for example, the Japanese, where Japanese schoolchildren learn their syllable typewriting from a certain poem or list. And we have such poems from a fairly late date, from the ninth century or so, for Germanic runes as well. I think that those poems themselves are late, but the idea and similar poems were around from the origin of the runes, mm. because how else would they have been able to learn? And these poems are quite simple. They just start off with a word that signifies the rune, and um, th that word will start with the same sound as the rune does. So the F rune is called fi, our word fi. And it'll say, fee is something that you get for work. Mm. I'm just coming up with a line here. <laughs> it doesn't say that in the original rune poems. And it goes on like that. For mm. every rune, there is a word, a designation. Some people call it a name. And that will start with the sound that the rune symbolizes. If that sound occurs initially, there are two that don't. And then you will have to choose a word that contain that sound. Mm. Like the ng rune, for example. And by organizing this as a poem... And why would they keep the order? It doesn't hmm. make sense anymore. Perhaps the original Futhark poem had some kind of internal logic to it that we can't hmm. see today because actually the ones we have are Christian. This means that we have a simple tool for handing on the runes and you only, it only remains for you to sit down and with a piece of wood and carve the 24 runes into a stick of wood, for example. Hmm. And by carrying that around and memorizing the poem, then you can actually start writing very easily because all you have to think about is what word do I want to write? Yeah. And of course, your name is a good thing. My name at the time would be Haimarikyaz. <laughs> so I would say start, well, is there a rune that has a designation that starts with huh? Well, there's Hagalaz, which means hail. So I would then, that is the rune that is called hail mm. and I'll carve the H rune mm. and then I'll go on with what comes next, ah, is there a rune? Yes, there is. And I'll card that and so forth. Slow and laborious process. And none of the old <laughs> inscriptions we have are very long. And they seem to be very much consistent names. Yeah. Well, as someone who's just learning Japanese uh, and trying to learn the three different writing systems, I can emphasize with this. It's slow and laborious. And it's like I can recommend anyone interested in writing systems try and learn a new one and get the feel of how hard it is to get that flow of writing that we're so used to because we're such a literate society. I, I tell my students of Romanology that they probably read more in one day than people in the Viking Age would do in a life. Mm. And when you go back another almost a thousand years, I think very few people knew how to read and write at all. And uh, they probably read and wrote less in an hour, <laughs> oh, excuse me, <laughs> in their life than we would do in an hour. Yes, point. Yeah. So you read the morning paper. I mean, you're way past that. Absolutely. Well, 
thank you very much for, for that. And I think you've touched on a lot of things that I'll be coming back to in this podcast next episode. About, we're going to be talking about brackets and some of the early inscriptions and what kind of material we have there. We'll be coming back to the rune designations as well, uh, especially when we're talking about the idea of magic runes. So this is a good, very good introduction to that. Just moving on, I've asked Hanik to bring a runestone, not literally, but um, I decided not to say a favourite runestone because that's uh, that's too hard. But a runic inscription that you kind of want to talk about for some reason. Well, this the one I'm going to talk about is actually one of my favourite, my top ten at <laughs> least, perhaps top five even. And since we are talking about the older runes mostly here, I would like to choose one of those rare inscriptions from the time before the Viking Age, and in this case the Krugsta stone. There are over 1,200 runestones in this province of Uppland alone, and out of those, very few, you can count them on one, the fingers of one hand, are from uh, the pre-Viking Age, and the only one in the original location is the Krugsta stone. It stands, uh, well, about 30 kilometers east of Uppsala, out in nowhere, but in a very exciting site. Uh, it has, I'm not going to talk about that because uh, we need to do a whole project. It's not been excavated, but there are many features around it which are incredibly suggestive and probably tie in with this runestone. It's carved on two sides, and it has the older type runes, the 24. It's never been deciphered convincingly. <laughs> and it may very well be a non-lexical runestone. But it also has a figure, and this figure is absolutely wonderful. I suggest everybody looks up the Kirugsta stone on the internet. It is a man, at least it looks like a man. It's a person, I should say. And this person has his hands in the air and all ten fingers stretched out. Mm. And his face is very strange looking. It's got two little beady eyes. It's a very big and roundish face. And there is a T, upside down T looking thing for his nose and mouth. And personally, I think this looks much more like a mask than mm. a true face. And it may be that this masked figure with his outstretched hands is trying to send a message, you know, get the hell out of here. <laughs> or he invites us to come and do some kind of ritual. I'm absolutely convinced that this is a place of religious significance. Mm -hmm. And um, the inscription itself, as I said, has not been deciphered. On the side which doesn't have the figure, it could stay stone or stones. Mm. There is one rune there that doesn't really fit in, but most people have interpreted that way. The other side has a problem with there's several consonants in a row that cannot be pronounced, something mm. like Munzuzeg. <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's not even a word in this strange language. That does, hasn't stopped various scholars from interpreting <laughs> the, this whole inscription. And uh, one of the more um, entertaining ones include one who says that the inscription means fear of the figure nine. Uh, and that is proven by the fact that the man has ten fingers, because you know <laughs> nine would be fearsome. Yes, and that's why he decided to have ten fingers. Yes, as no one else has. And then someone says, "Well, you can clearly see that the tenth finger is is drawn in. You cannot, <laughs> but you know." 
Also, there is another uh, scholar who is more serious, but um, by a little bit of <laughs> elaboration, makes the runes on the undecipherable side say Mustrian. And what has this Mustrian, he says it has to do with monastery. Hmm. And he envisions somebody coming from southern Europe, or at least the southern part of the Germanic territory. And the stone has usually been dated to the mid-6th century. Now, monasteries weren't around in Europe before 500, so this must have been very early on. But obviously this person from a monastery got impatient and wanted to do some traveling (laughs) and went from Germany to Sweden outside Uppsala. And at the time, it's possible that ancient German and ancient Swedish were mutually somewhat intelligible. But when they asked him, you know, so, hi, who are you, and so forth, and they asked, so what's your name? And he would say, he would think that they asked him, where do you come from? And he answered, I come from a monastery. And they thought that he said that was his name. So they call this guy, uh, the guy from the, you know, Mustrian, (laughs) the guy from the monastery. And I find that incredibly entertaining, yes. uh, not quite credible. And also it's not very good runology because in order to get this word, uh, the runologist, I'm not going to mention his name, had to <laughs> actually twist one of the runes to be something else. Mm. It's a clear E rune and he wanted it to be a U rune or an R rune. Mm. So it's still to be interpreted properly. It is. It is. And I think that if we get a clear picture of when this is from, and we discover the secrets of everything that's around it, I think that we know more what kind of setting we have. And context is king when it Mm. comes to runic inscriptions. You can never just interpret a runic inscription from what it says. You have to look at every single aspect. Mm. All runic inscriptions on stone are multimedia monuments. And they speak to their surroundings, and they speak if they have any kind of uh, figures or anything else. They, They are important in that respect, too. Well, thank you so very much for being here, Henrik. It was a pleasure. And uh, I'm, I have a feeling we might hear more from you in the future, given that we're in the same building. <laughs> and that makes everything much easier for me. I look forward to that. Yes. And, uh, well, thank you very much. Um, that was it for the very first episode of the RuneCast. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back again for the next episode in about three weeks which will be about some of the earliest runic inscriptions we have. So until then, stay ruined. The Runecast is made by me, Maja Beckvall, and is funded by Riksbanken's Jubileumsfond, the Swedish Foundation for Humanities and Social Sciences, and with support from Uppsala Runic Forum at the Department of Scandinavian Languages at Uppsala University. You can find us on Twitter at RuneCastPod in one word, and on Uppsala Runic Forum's Facebook page, which is Uppsala Rune Forum. Think Rune Forum, but without the E. Run Forum. Pom pom pom. Här kommer Henrik.